Hello and welcome to Loose Cannon, the Civil Liberties Podcast. I'm Parnell McGuinness, columnist of the SMH and The Age, and I'm here with Jonathan Gadir. Hi Parnell, how are you going? Great, thank you. It's so good to be here again. Really looking forward to today's chat. Yeah, okay. So today uh, we're going to go straight to the heart of almost all civil liberties debates. How do we protect fundamental rights? Uh, how do we protect freedom of speech, freedom of movement, etc.? And specifically, do we need a Human Rights Act or human rights protections in the Constitution? Now, the guest that we have on today writes things that I ha- that, that that have made me a bit mad in the past, but I think it's important that we're all able to conduct debates with people whose points of view you know confound us or or anger us, and and do that with with civility and in an honest spirit of um, shall we say intellectual contest, Parnell. Let's uh, let's hear from you about our guest, James Allen. Give us the intro. Well, James Allen, he's Professor of Law at the University of Queensland. He writes about and argues very loudly against the Bill of Rights and constitutional human rights protections. Um, in his university bio, and I quote, he says, he is delighted to have moved to a country without a national Bill of Rights. He's been actively involved in the efforts trying to stop one from being enacted here in Australia. So it's a bit of a life's mission for Jim. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you very much, uh, both of you. Uh, Jonathan, you joined my wife in fundamentally disagreeing with me, so uh, you're not in bad company. Yeah, well, let's let's get into that. I'm going to start gingerly with a quote from something you wrote, you know, a long time ago, but I think probably you still think, um, and it's it goes like this. Um, proponents of human rights protections talk, you know, quote, quote, repeatedly about how such an instrument protects fundamental human rights as though these things were mysteriously or magically self-defining and self-enforcing. They are not. They simply transfer the power to define what counts as, say, a reasonable limit on free speech over to committees of ex-lawyers who have no greater access to a pipeline to God on these moral and political issues than anyone else, but who are immune from being removed by the voters for the decisions they reach. Um, James, let's get into that. I still agree with that. That is definitely my position. So you're talking about judges. I'm talking about unelected top judges in the common law world. It's a bit of a nuance if you move to the civil law world, but if we stop, if we stay in the common law world, then absolutely. So, okay, let's explain from the beginning for someone who doesn't know what a human rights act or what a human rights protection of the constitution means. The, I guess if you have that, it's the role of a judge to hear a case and decide as they do with other laws, you know, what is a violation of human rights and what's not. Yeah. So what a Bill of Rights does is it enumerates or articulates in the language of rights a set of moral um, entitlements in a very vague and amorphous way. So the right to free speech is a very broad and amorphous moral entitlement that you are effectively uh, bringing into the legal realm. And of course, you 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 can go all the way back to the late 18th century when Bentham was pointing out that you sell these documents with a hint of absolutism, like as though the right to free speech allows you to say anything, but of course it doesn't. Even in the US, there are many, many restrictions on what you can say. And so what happens is you sell them as absolute, 
But of course, the limits that get put on what you can say, free speech, uh, right to free speech, are, are then transferred over to nine, or in Australia's case, seven top unelected judges who amongst themselves decide by voting. So they use a majoritarian voting system, five beats four, four beats three, and they put limits on free speech. So in Australia, the limits are put by the parliament. You might agree with them. I disagree with many of the ones here. I, I don't like section 18C, but your remedy here in Australia is to elect someone with a bit of backbone, a party. Your remedy in the US, Canada, ever more so Britain, South Africa, is basically to vote for a party that will change the judicial makeup so that they can change the rules. That is the only remedy you have. I tell people, and I, I stand by this, that if you look at what you can say in Australia today, there's more scope to speak your mind than there is in Canada, which has one of the most potent, entrenched constitutional bills of rights in the world, because the judges in Canada prefer sort of hate speech-like provisions to free speech. And so you have no remedy. Here in Australia, we have a remedy. We can, I'm not saying democracy is perfect. I'm quite a Churchillian about it. I think it's got a lot of flaws, but it's better than anything else. And for me, it's certainly miles better than a sort of cast of judicial philosopher kings who, who lay down rules that there are no way, that they're not accountable and there's no way to override them other than appointing new judges who one day might. So I definitely stand by that quote you read out. So 73% of the public at the moment are fine with the ban on travel, including leaving the country. They're fine with it. They're happy for it to stay that way. And of course, probably the remaining percentage of the public is very, very viscerally and intensely affected by it, being separated from loved ones, um, not able to return to countries they want to return to, even permanently, that people are being rejected on that basis. So the burden of separation is being suffered very, very intensely by a minority. Um, I count members of my own immediate family among them. So we have politicians doing what our parliamentary system would have them do. It's doing what comes naturally, which is to prioritise in a very single-minded way the views and the prejudices, sometimes informed, sometimes not informed, of the majority or, let's say, swinging voters in marginal seats irrespective of the effect on those who don't um, don't have the numbers in their favour. And what's so great, and, and I guess I should say, how's that going for us in terms of protecting our basic rights? Well, I mean, you have to separate outcomes from processes. There is nobody, I don't think, in a law school in Australia who's complained more bitterly about that point you make than I have. I've written articles in the US and Law and Liberty. Every second article I write for The Spectator is blasting the Morrison government. I think they're pusillanimous. Um, Parnell will tell you if there's anybody who's written more vitriolically about the total lack of spine and the way these people have approached the pandemic, I don't know who it is. We did apply, my wife and I, and managed to get out last Christmas. It was humiliating to have to do that, but my family's overseas. So I don't have any trick at all with their ridiculous rules. I, I think the way that, I think these have been the greatest inroads on our freedoms and civil liberties in about 200 years. Now, that said, in Canada, the judges have done nothing to alleviate almost as harsh lockdown rules, and in some ways, worse lockdown rules with an incredibly potent Bill of Rights. 
neither have the judges done anything in Britain. Your unspoken premise that if we had a Bill of Rights, the judges would somehow have alleviated it, I totally disagree with. There's no evidence in the world that the judges have stood up to any politician anywhere on COVID. There are things that we don't have. I mean, there are things that have happened in Australia that haven't happened in any other country. And I'm going to say, I'm going to propose that the reason they've happened, like we don't, there's no other country from our tradition that has an exit ban. I'm going to say that that irrationality of that is allowed to stand precisely because even though the judges might be spineless and they might have values that we don't like, but even because, even because, even when that's the case, we we still have this irrational, um, you know, government behaviour continuing, because we have nothing. We have nothing. So what you're essentially what I'm asking is: is it better? Is it really better to have nothing, despite the fact that the lawyers and the judges are failing? Well, I don't accept your premise, Jonathan. You're making an n equals one argument. I can point to loads of really intrusive provisions in New York State, which has the worst deaths per million in the world and the judges have alleviated none of those. And I can point to provisions in Britain that in some ways look harsher than Australia. So you've picked the one provision and N equals one, which again, I think it's an appalling provision, but you can't pick one provision and say, we have this, no one else has it. If we had a bill of rights, we'd be in the sunny uplands of a beautiful sort of libertarian, you know, civil liberties world. We would not. All we would have is, I mean, I. There are particular reasons why we have this provision. Again, I don't like it. I think it has to do with the fact we're an island. We close the borders early. Again, it makes no sense to me. I mean, why why don't you let people leave if they knowingly know that it's going to come back in? Um, I personally think Morrison is a spineless person who has no values at all, and I've said that in print. But the link, it's an incredibly tenuous link to draw a bow between one provision and a bill of rights would make things better when I can, you know, take you through jurisdictions with bills of rights, with strong judges who are prepared to strike down laws left, right, and center, and they won't touch COVID. They have been conditioned to think that this is a, a disease that's going to wipe out the population. You know, the American judges in the height of the Second World War signed off on FDR taking Japanese Americans and parking them in, you know, that was the Korematsu case. If you believe, and I don't, I think, you know, the survival rate of this is 99.7%. Anyone under 70, um, you basically, if you're healthy and not obese, have about a one in a million chance of dying from it. Sweden is now looking great. So I'm happy to talk lockdown. But there's no connection, in my view, between picking one of the many horrible provisions of lockdown and saying it would be better if we had a Bill of Rights. The problem with Bills of Rights are... Again, you have these amorphous moral provisions and you hand it over to judges and there's no remedy for the average person if you don't like the decisions they make. So from my point of view, if you talk about same-sex marriage, it is much better that the voters or the voters through their representative institutions in parliament make those kind of moral calls than having the American Supreme Court vote five to four or the Canadian Supreme Court vote five to four to bring it in. That is just not a good way to make big ticket social policy decisions in a democracy. If you don't like what your fellow citizens decide, you have a remedy. You can go out on Saturdays and campaign for a party. There's some prospect you can overturn their views. If you don't like what the judges have done, I don't like what the judges have done in Australia in love. Even without a Bill of Rights, they just made it up. They created an entitlement out of thin air and nobody can do anything about it. 
Now that is an appalling situation for anyone who thinks that, you know, there's a sort of ability for all of us to participate in political and social decision-making on a even level. So sorry, what was that that you said you opposed? Was it love? Sorry. The love case where they just made up an entitlement for um, non-Australian people claiming to be, have Aboriginal status, not to be deported. And, you know, it was just, it might be the worst decision of the high court in the last 50 years. And they did it on the basis of a sort of an implied freedom type argument, which itself is a made up entitlement in Australia, which is an attempt to create a sort of half our sort of bill of rights. So if you go down the path of having sort of savior type judges, then when they go off the rails, you have no remedy. Okay. Um, just, 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 you mean your politicians, you can wait and eventually vote them out. And that's just, a pretty good remedy. Let's just, just, just uh, slow down a bit because w- you mentioned there the, the implied freedom of political communication, yeah, which you said is a kind of made up kind of half-fast bill of rights, yeah? That's what you were talking about. Uh, yeah, I've, I've I've spent fifteen years writing about how it doesn't exist. Okay, was, and a judge and a judge recently and a judge in the high court recently said it might not exist. So, okay, give give me the background on that. You're saying it doesn't exist and it shouldn't exist, or it doesn't exist and we need to write something so that it does exist, so that we yeah. have the. So again, you have to distinguish between substantive outcomes you like or don't like and the procedure or method for reaching decision-making. You'll always be able to point to cases for people where you can say, I like what the judges did there, or I don't like what they did there. That's a distinct issue. That's a, a, you have to distinguish that from the issue of what is a proper way to make decisions in a sort of modern democracy. So what happened was when the founders of Australia looked at it, we basically copied the American Constitution. We have the Madisonian Constitution before the American Bill of Rights. It's as American as any constitution in the world. I'm Canadian for listeners' point of view, but so I, you know, I learned with my mother's milk not to like American stuff. But it, we have an American Constitution. Maybe the Filipinos have a more American one, but it's us or them. And the only thing we didn't copy from the Americans really was we we rejected their Bill of Rights. And we rejected their amending formula. There's a few other little things. And on the Bill of Rights, the view was that it's better to leave these issues to Parliament than to have a sort of an elite judiciary make the calls. And then you can fast forward. We've had two constitutional amendments trying to bring in a Bill of Rights. Both have failed. The second one in 1988 lost in every state, including Victoria. If you can't win in Victoria, you're stuffed, in my view, on a constitutional referendum. Four years later, in 1992, um, in ACTV, some of the judges who were quite active and hoping for the 1988 Bill of Rights type referendum to succeed were quite disappointed. And they decided after 90 years that in the texture and structure of our Constitution, having lain invisible for 90 years, there was an implied freedom. It's like a five-part argument. It's the most implausible step-by-step set of reasoning. Now, I'm possibly the biggest pro-free speech academic in this country. I would put very few limits on free speech. I believe in the John Stuart Mill ideal of a cauldron of competing ideas. I think free speech only makes sense when you're forced to listen to views you don't like and don't agree with. If everyone's going around saying Jim Allen's a great, wonderful, witty uh, bon vivant guy, that's not a commitment to free speech. That's a commitment to hearing people say stuff you like. So I I agree with free speech. And I like some of the outcomes that the judges have delivered. 
It's a dishonest procedure. It doesn't exist. And you shouldn't be committed to a process that disenfranchises all of the rest of your fellow citizens, even if once in a blue moon you like the outcome. So I ran, you know, George Williams and I spent you know, a few weeks going around the country debating this the last time they tried to bring one in. And I always just started the debate in front of the audience by asking people how much, how many of them were in favor of the right to free speech. They all put their hand up. You know, the guy with the brown shirt and the little mustache put his hand up. But the point is that once you leave the rarefied Olympian heights of moral abstractions, and I start giving examples of what courts have done around the world, you know, do you do you want tobacco companies to be able to advertise outside of primary schools? Because the Canadian Supreme Court said yes. And then you can go to hate speech laws, and then you can go to campaign finance rules. And if you don't like these things in these countries, you can't do anything about it. Can I just go back to one thing you said? You said it was a dishonest procedure to for the judges to find mysteriously, as you say, you know, in our constitution, an implied freedom to communicate about political matters. Why, why is it dishonest to say, well, the constitution talks about elections. It talks about how we vote, how we elect, you know, parliamentarians and all, all of that associated stuff. Isn't it a necessary corollary that we can, you know, talk about what all of these parliamentarians are proposing and doing? Well, why is that dishonest? I think it's dishonest because we know that they spent about, you know, two months talking about whether to have a right to free speech, and they said, no, we'll leave it to parliament. And we know that there was a big debate and they had a constitutional referendum in the 20s to have one, and they said no. And we know that they had a constitutional amendment to have one in the 1980s, and people got to vote and they said no. And then 92 years later, the judges go, and they didn't do it quite the way you said, but they um, used the provision in Section 24 directly chosen by the people, and they did this five-step thing. You can't really be accountable to the voters. It was a method that you could use to come up with any right you want. Now, the problem is that we know that they didn't come up with those rights. And, you know, what is legitimate and what is binding is the view that there's some sort of authoritative lawmaking body. And it's not the judges. They're supposed to be interpreting the text. So honest interpretation must sometimes throw up outcomes you don't like. Otherwise, you're a legislator. Now, if your wife writes you a note and says, I want to go to Cinema X, and you interpret that to be Cinema Y because you like to sit back in a chair and have a glass of wine, you know that might be a better outcome, but it's not honest interpretation. And what the judges did in the implied freedom is so wholly implausible. And they delivered what they wanted all along. Now, do I like some of the outcomes? Yes. Do I think it's a a theory of interpretation that can be generalized and used um, widely in any way that where you keep a straight face? No, I'm not alone in that. There's a famous case in, you know, in the the high court on the implied freedom of political communication, where it was a guy leafleting in the street just saying that the cops were corrupt. And, you know, if it wasn't for the implied freedom in the high court, you know, that guy would be in jail. So, Well, yeah, again, but you have to, I mean, if you want to go down and look at, there's been six cases where they've over, using this implied freedom where they've um, invalidated or, or struck down legislation. The 92 case was labor legislation Again, I think the labor legislation in 92 that had to do with um, broad TV broadcasting during election, I, that kind of legislation would stand in Canada with our with the Canadian uh, Bill of Rights, but here they struck it down, which is ironic, um, which is trying to sort of share around the money with 
sort of a campaign finance type provision. Since then, every provision that's been struck down, every single one has been Liberal Party legislation. Um, nobody talks about that too much. Um, you can protest, uh, you know, some of the some of the cases uh, where you're dealing with protesters who protest logging that gets struck down. But if you're protesting abortion clinics, that doesn't get struck down. I mean, it's very hard to draw these sort of lines that you want to. Um, I'm not saying that the judges are overtly labor left. What I think is that if you bring the this sort of Bill of Rights thinking to these issues, it's almost impossible to strike down big spending, big government, um, welfare type provisions. And it's very easy to strike down small government um, type provisions that I like. So what if it's what if it's just a, a statute, not not in the constitution? Well, the only things they can strike down are statutes. They they can't use the implied freedom to change the constitution. What they're using it for is no, no. I, what with- I mean is, what if we have protections that are just in the statute rather than protections that are built into a constitution? Is that better? Well, it depends. So, I mean, one of the things that happened in Australia after the, um, I think the constitutional referendum is that. Bill of Rights advocates like George Williams and basically every other public law law professor in this country, except for my colleague Nick Aroni, realized that the chances of getting it through a Section One Twenty Eight referendum were zero, and so they moved to a um, goal of bringing in a statutory Bill of Rights. Uh, and in fact, George did a you know you have to give him much credit. He he, I won't say single handedly, but he was largely responsible for the Victorian of human rights and responsibilities. Now, it's a it's a more subtle argument against those, but if you look at the British Statutory Bill of Rights, it has been massively important in empowering the judges. Um, if you look at um, Eileen Kavanaugh, who's a law professor at Oxford, she said it's, and she's in favor of this, by the way, she said it's made the British judges as powerful as the American judges. Now, what they can't do is invalidate statutes. They can't strike them down, but they have this I call it a reading down power, but it's an interpretation power where you say, Jonathan, you're a judge. When you read any statute, I want you now under this statutory bill of rights to read it in the most rights respecting way you can. And so, you know, when you read marriages between a man and a woman, if there's any scope at all for you to read that um, as between a man and a man and a woman. So just do that for us, Jonathan. And it's remarkable. The British judges have been, you know, they've used the reading down provision in an incredibly virulent way, they have said it allows them to read words in, read words out, ignore the clear intention of Parliament. That's from an actual UK Supreme Court case guidance. And my view is that uh, that was in the mind of George. I don't know, I'm speculating, but they were hoping for a sort of British type um, outcome. We didn't get that. We got more of a New Zealand type statutory Bill of Rights outcome, which has been much less virulent. Good for me. Monsilovich is the big case here in uh, Australia. But uh, so, I mean, I'm glad it's been much less virulent. It could easily have gone the British way. Tim, I wanted to start off. Look, I've I've heard you talk about this stuff for years. And frankly, you've been very formative in my opinions on this because you make such strong arguments. But I do wonder at the moment, um, we have a very populist government at the moment, or at least a a poll-driven government, and it seems like there is no way to check its powers and the powers 
as allocated to governments under the Constitution, are apparently no check on it at all. Basically, governments at both federal and state level can do almost anything significant to our freedoms in the name of public health emergency. Um, in that circumstance, is there no way that a Bill of Rights could be drafted or some other form of check could be drafted that would ensure that this never happens again? Well, I agree with your starting point that, uh, I mean, I think the Wall Street Journal came close to calling Australia a COVID dictatorship, and I, I don't uh, disagree with that. I, I think what, what this government has done is terrible. And I mean, I as a hard, strong conservative, I was I asked people to vote for the late, I did preference labor in the in the Turnbull election, and I'm going to do it again. They don't deserve to be reelected. And whatever you think about the economic policies of labor, which I think will be horrible, nobody with a nobody should put their hand on their heart and vote for this this group of people who have done this to this country. So I I share your premises um, on in terms of how badly they behave. Now, of course, you know Boris Johnson in Britain has behaved virtually as badly. Uh, Justin Trudeau, in many ways, has behaved even worse than. Scott Morrison, and except for not being able to leave the country, the impositions on people in Canada have probably been worse, not in Alberta. And so then the question is, well, is there nothing we can do? And again, I'll say this again. If you find yourself in a time of panic, moral panic, the Second World War, when they're moving Japanese people off the coast, but if you think that in the height of a pandemic with Dan Andrews saying we're all going to die tomorrow, which is ridiculous, you know, the survival rate is close to 100% if you're, under, if you're under 60. If you think these judges are going to do anything to change the rules, and I just think you and I are disagreeing about an empirical fact, you can't point to anywhere where the judges are doing that. And so this has got to be fixed by voters. We got, I mean, I wrote a column in The Spectator this week and citing Herbert Hardin saying at some point, protest is the right thing to do. It's the civil disobedience. That's the only remedy we have. And I'm all for it now, because I, I think that you're grasping at straws. Now, imagine I'm wrong empirically. Imagine that the judges stepped down from on high and they swept aside all of the public health things that are scaring the bejesus out of people. I mean, I don't think they'd ever do that. But let's say they did. I mean, judges who are that bullshit and that sort of strong will, well, you know, they might like what they're doing here. But God, What's to stop them? They'd just be letting rip everywhere. Why bother electing anyone? That's, you know, so there's downsides even when they do things you like. But I want to back up a bit to the term you keep using, philosopher kings for judges. And I'm wondering a little bit whether it is the fact that it is this single profession that would then be charged with um, charged with this, this sort of process in our democracy that, that bothers you the most. I mean, is there... Nowhere else in the world has this, but there are other democratic structures elsewhere. Would you be more comfortable with a Bill of Rights as sort of adjudicated by, by a different set of people or a, random, a randomly selected set of people? Is that where it lies? Is the, the distrust of the judiciary of the homogenous group of people or is there, is there some other issue? Well, no, I think I would be just as unhappy if you brought together a bunch of theologians or Psychologist. So I'll give you a potted history that goes some way to answer that. So in the West, um, up until at least Jefferson, we had 
the natural law tradition, the idea that there are these God-given rights and these entitlements all flow back to a benevolent theistic God. And so to the extent that humans made laws, you could hold them up against these entitlements supposedly came from God, a benevolent God. And so people could at least see where these moral entitlements are coming from. You might not, you know, there were big problems if you if you moved into questioning whether this benevolent theistic God existed or not, and whether you actually knew what the God was going to say, but at least there was some basis. So the question then is, well, where are these moral rights coming from? And there's answers, you know, the oldest one, of course, is the, is the one that links it to God, but then you can link it to, you know, my, my other job is as a moral philosopher, you can link it to, a sort of social contract type argument, or you can link it to a purpose of being type Kantian reason argument. Um, you can link it to all sorts of things, but all of them are pretty unsatisfying at the end of the day. And so we live in a world where the sort of egalitarians can't talk to the utilitarians, you can't talk to the Kantians because they don't agree on first principles. And so what they do, what they all want to do is just skip over justifying where these moral rights come from. And then they just move on. With legal rights, you might not like the legal right. You might wish it weren't there. But, you know, it's solid. At the margins, we can argue about whether it applies or not. But you can look up the statute or you can argue about the rule that emerges from a line of cases. With moral rights, it, the arguments are more fundamental. You're arguing... Is there even a right to housing? I don't think there is a right to housing, but lots of people think there is, and you have to trace it to something. I don't know. You know, People trace it to all sorts of things, but this just becomes an argument in sort of moral philosophy, and there's no way to resolve the argument. And so when judges move into what I would call big-ticket moral philosophizing, A, they're not very good at it. They don't know any moral philosophy, um, and B, they just make assertions, and there's nothing that the regular voting citizen can do. When it comes to, you know, whether you have a right to free speech in a certain area or whether you ought to have an abortion, I actually don't think that a law degree makes you any more insightful than a plumber or a secretary or, you know, your average Joe. And I don't see why a law, a law degree ought to um, put you in a superior position. And that's what it does. But what's wrong with a judge going to an an explanatory, like they do now, they go to the, if something's unclear and they need to interpret a statute, they go sometimes to the parliamentary uh, second reading speech, they go to the explanatory memorandum, they search for what was intended and they come up with an answer. Why should that be any different when it comes to having, say, some kind of, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of movement statute, like the, you know, I'd say Victorian human rights thing is a statute, isn't it? It's not nothing in the constitution. Well, it's a statute that deals in moral abstractions that don't constrain us. So normally statutes like a, a, a right to, you know, fair housing and a rent review sort of context where you, you're, you're given a non-discriminatory right if you're a renter. It's just loaded with detail, loaded with all sorts of provisions. And the judge is not left with a sort of free discretion to plunk outcomes out of thin air. If someone says you have a right to free speech, full stop, you know, you can, you and Parnell can, you know, hold hands while I play Kumbaya on the guitar, but that's not telling us where to draw the line on hate speech or campaign finance rules or anything to do with free speech. So it's very close to a blank check to the judiciary. So I don't like sort of blank check moral abdication in any sense, but it's particularly bad in a constitutional 
context. Sure, but I'm not talking about constitution now. You have legislation, and look at the Privacy Act, which I deal with in my work. I mean, it's full of reasonable this, reasonable that, all sorts of grey amorphous terms that are so open to interpretation. That's normal in statutes. I don't understand why it's such a big deal to have a statute that says It's normal in some statutes. I don't really like that. I always, my line is always that the reasonable person test just means what you, the point of application interpreter thinks reasonable. And there's usually a spectrum of reasonable and it's just purely arbitrary where you point on that spectrum. There's lots of reasonable people who disagree and a reasonable person test is pretty close to, you know, arbitrary and open. Um, But in privacy like things, the parliament, if they're unhappy with the way a series of cases is going, can come back and legislate. In a constitutional bill of rights, that can't yeah, happen. But you keep on going back to yeah. constitutional bill of rights. Let's say okay, we but want in a statute. statutory yeah. bill of, but here's the problem with statutory bill of rights, and on this particular point, and Jeff Goldsworthy brings it up. It's sold as just a regular statute, but it's not really because it purports to be declaring our timeless fundamental rights. And so the second main power that these bills of rights give is a is a declaration of inconsistency power. Um, when the judges declare that Parliament has taken away your timeless rights, it's almost impossible for Parliament to respond to that. There have been dozens and dozens of these declarations under their statutory Bill of Rights in Britain that Parliament until recently had never stood up to them once. They did stand up to them in Britain recently over prisoner voting. Parnell, because of the interest of time and I hijacked your line of questions, it's all yours until we wind up. So... <laughs> Sorry about I'm I'm going to try and end us with some kind of hopes. And, and I don't know whether you're going to be able to give it to us here, Jim, but I have also been wondering. So as you mentioned with, with Roe versus Wade again, it's been interpreted differently in different states in America. And I wonder whether the what has proven to be a weakness in our federal system over the last year or two um, might prove to be a strength going forward. So it's been the states making decisions and the states, if they continue to do so, may end up in a competition in sort of competitive federalism there where we would be tempted to move to more free states. Do you think that that would be supported in our system? Would it be possible? The thing I agreed with with Turnbull, and I know, Parnell, you liked him. I think he, I thought he was god-awful from day one. But <laughs> an argument for another day. Right. The one thing that he got right was to offer states income tax power because you cannot run a competitive federal system where the states are mendicants. They should be raising their own money. It wouldn't mean more tax for everyone. They get that wrong. So in Canada, you fill out a federal tax, then you fill out your province one. And if the province, so if we, I'm just, let's just assume you had a 50% marginal tax rate. I'm making this up. And let's assume the center took 30. And then on day one, the states would have 20. So you'd be at the same level. And if Queensland wanted to lower theirs down to 10, they could. And and they would have to fund themselves largely. And what that means is if Dan Andrews wants to impose seven months of hard lockdown, the rest of the country's not writing a check for him. And I'll tell you what, they'd be out of lockdown by now. So right now, there is no cost for the states for any of the hardline stuff they're doing, because whatever they do, the center is writing the check. And this is not There is no system in the world that works like this. We'd be better off being a centralized British type system. We're in the worst situation. We have federalism in form and in name, 
but no real federalism the way proper federal systems work. And so, so the James Allen recommendation for becoming a, a for a, an alternative to a Bill of Rights to become a more federal or or centralized country? Well, I think federal systems, the evidence is overwhelming. They they work better and they have more economic wealth and they have more freedom. I don't I mean the freedom one's a toss-up really, but um, you know, one of the things that Abbott got right was to set up that commission on on federalism, and on day one, uh, Turnbull disbanded it. I mean, that was some hope. But if you think that what we have now is a good version of competitive federalism, you, you, you can't run that with mendicant states. And that's all for today's Loose Cannon. Thanks for listening. Subscribe and tell your friends about it. You'll find our details in the show notes. We're not sure who we've got on next week, but I promise it'll be someone great. Yep, not sure, but it'll be great. You're right. Talk to you then. 